Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we get to join together on this Lord's Day evening. We get to open Your Word again tonight. We get to uh, close out this day by looking at the covenant You established with Noah, by examining what it means for us, what it means in regard to this topic that we've been discussing of covenant theology. And Father, we pray that You would work in our hearts even during this time. It's um, it's an important topic. It's one that is applicable to us, one that we need to think about. And I pray that uh, you would do a work in us by your Spirit to encourage us, to lift our eyes to you and to your grace and your goodness, even in our discussion tonight. So we ask for your blessing and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we will be discussing the Noahic covenant. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and uh, we are going to read together the first 17 verses. So I could have, if I could have a volunteer, please, to read verses 1 through 7, nice and loud so everybody can hear it, and then another volunteer to read 8 through 17, please. You've got 1 through 7, Rick. Another volunteer? All right. You're on it, Troy, 8 through 17. Fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. For you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. <clears throat> from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his son with him, All right. Well, thank you. So, uh, the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God establishes with Noah. 
This is the first of the explicit covenants that we are talking about in our discussion of covenant theology. We have uh, been working through and talking about, um, though we've mentioned these covenants uh, in passing and maybe even a little bit more than in passing, we've not talked about them uh, nearly as much as we have talked about the um, theological covenants or the, the uh, larger covenants, the overarching covenants that, uh, that we talk about often when we discuss covenant theology. And so if you can think about um, what is the covenant uh, that is established between, uh, well, at the, at, at the very outset of creation, what do we call that covenant? Covenant of works, right? Or the Adamic covenant, covenant of creation. It has various names, but nevertheless, it's the covenant that we see established right off the bat between God and mankind, where God tells Adam, um, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. The day that you do, you will surely die, right? So we talked about that covenant being the covenant of works. All right, covenant of works established at creation. Of course, we saw that that covenant was broken. No surprise there. Uh, sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, uh, and Adam uh, sins. And then right away we have the promise given in 3.15 of a new covenant. And what do we call that covenant? Covenant of grace. All right, covenant of grace. And, uh, and so we see this one established and broken right away. Um, and this one was given, uh, life was to be given based upon Adam's obedience. But of course, Adam disobeys. And so he and we inherit death and guilt and sin instead. And so we have the establishment of this covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, we said that uh, there will come the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus himself who will fulfill the covenant of works, but give us the reward for that fulfillment. We will get to inherit that. So we call that the covenant of grace. And, and, uh, and so we can understand these things going on in Scripture. And we talked about a, a covenant that was established before creation between the members of the Trinity, what do we call that covenant that governs this whole situation? It's the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant, and what's the label we give to it? Covenant of redemption, right? Which kind of oversees all of this, describes this, right? Yeah, I did it. Nice. It's not always a guarantee. All right, covenant of redemption. Now, this is the basic framework that we've been discussing, our covenant theology. However, you'll notice about these that these are not as explicitly found in Scripture as the Noahic covenant, as the Abrahamic covenant, as the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and the New covenant. Those are what we call the explicit covenants in Scripture. And so what we want to do today is begin to look at the first of the explicit covenants. Now, this one is pretty explicit, and actually they all are, um, but, but as far as like one chapter where it is established or where it is promised or where it is given, uh, you have to read 
uh, a little bit more in detail to identify these covenants. But what we want to do today is look at the Noahic covenant, which is the first of the explicit covenants given, to see how it might relate to this. All right? So we talked last time about um, the uh, paedo-baptistic covenant theology, the, the covenant theology that is behind infant baptism for uh, the, the Reformed who baptized their infants. Um, so that would be the uh, um, Presbyterians, um, uh, Dutch Reformed, etc., right? So the Reformed churches who baptized their infants. We talked about the covenant theology that is behind uh, their uh, practice of infant baptism. And when they do that, part of their covenant theology is that when they look at this covenant of grace and then they look at the explicit covenants in your Bible... Noahic, etc., they see that each of these, the Noahic and the Abrahamic, etc., they, they are administrations of this covenant, that they are themselves a part of the covenant of grace, which raises a question for us, how do we understand the Noahic covenant and how does it work with redemption, right? How does the Noahic covenant work with redemption? So what we want to do tonight is just uh, look through that uh, covenant, do a little bit of a Bible study uh, on these verses that we uh, have identified here in Genesis chapter 9. And we want to examine this covenant a little bit to see how we should think about it. Where does it fit in regard to redemption? And so we can begin by, uh, first of all, thinking of where we are in Genesis, right? It's probably, I don't know, a year and a half maybe since we've covered this uh, material in our preaching. And so as we go back to chapter 6, for example, we've got to pick up speed to see how we got to chapter 9 in Genesis. In chapter 6, we saw that there was terrible sin on the earth in the beginning, uh, an awful kind of wickedness that causes uh, God to decide to destroy and so beginning in uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, you've got the promise uh, or the, the command to Noah to build the ark because um, uh, his family, he and his family are going to be rescued through this flood because God is going to send a terrible flood that's going to wipe out not just a few people and not just all people, but all flesh, except for uh, those who find themselves on the ark. And so you have the gathering of the animals and all that kind of stuff. And throughout that uh, description of what's going on with the water covering the earth, and, and then even when the water begins to recede, the earth is like formless and void. It's the kind of language from Genesis chapter 1 that takes us back to the very picture, the description of creation where it goes from this mess where things aren't put in place yet, and, and, and day one, two, three, four, five, and six are God putting those pieces into place so that in Genesis chapter one, you have the story of creation. Well, here with the flood, you have, as it were, God decreating the earth. He's, he's undoing the creation, as it were. The, land, the, the grasses and the trees and the plants that were growing on the ground, they get destroyed and flooded. All the animals that were teeming all over the place, they are flooded out and they are killed and they are put to death and things go back to being a wasteland. Water's covering everything, just like in the beginning of creation. And then you have God beginning to restore and bring back creation. The language that the author uses is meant to draw us back in our thinking to the original creation story. It's as if 
There was creation, and then the fall happens, and things got so bad that God backs up and He decreates, as it were. He's taking things back to square one, and He's starting again, but now it's not just, uh, He doesn't just plant Adam and Eve. He plants Noah and his wife and their sons and their sons' wives, etc. And so you have the beginning of the race. And so there's this decreational language that's used uh, to show that God is doing something with all of creation. He's at work with all of creation to do something new. Okay, so after understanding that decreational language, keep your, your uh, thumb here in Genesis chapter 9 and go back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember that we have now, uh, in, in glancing very briefly at the flood itself, we see that God has decreated the world, and we're going to see what's, uh, what's going to happen. And now you have, uh, you have um, the, the, the waters recede, and uh, grasses and plants and things like that begin to grow, and they begin to spread out, etc. Listen to this language from chapter 1 of Genesis, back to creation, back to um, uh, the, the sixth day, the conclusion of the sixth day, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, that is Adam and Eve, or the man and the woman, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens <clears throat> and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. That's the, the creational language. That's the original description. That's what's going on at the conclusion of creation. He's, he gives these blessings. He gives these instructions. And then we come to Genesis chapter 9. See if you recognize the language from chapter 1. And God blessed Noah. Remember, God had blessed them in 128. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, familiar language, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's repeating the same kind of language that he did to the first man and the first woman. And he continues in verse 2, chapter 9, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Do you hear the language being repeated? It's the same description of the animals as we saw back in, in chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. It's the beasts of the earth. It's the birds of the heavens. It's the things that creep on the ground. It's the fish of the sea. But back in 128, 29, and 30, he was told, you will have dominion. You're to subdue them and have dominion. And in not that context, it was a peaceful dominion. But in this context, with sin entering the picture, with this being after the fall, now what's going to be the relationship between the man and his family and the beasts? Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon them. But you see that God is using new creational language. He's repeating that same language from back in 1, 28 through 30. 
Into your hand they shall be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now that's different. That's new, isn't it? Just like the uh, fear of you and the dread of you being upon all the creatures is a new thing, back in 128, 29, and 30, what did they have for food? Green stuff, right? Plants. Salad. I will refrain from making comments. But here, something good comes out of this. <laughs> we get to eat uh, flesh, right? We get to eat animals. We get to eat uh, uh, things besides plants, okay? So I give you everything, right? As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But here's a command, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, blood, right? But we have this new creational language, and it's important for us to, to think about that, not just because it's unique, not just because it takes us back in our thinking to the beginning. And by the way, when you're reading the Bible and you're seeing repeated words that sound familiar, clusters, swirls of words that sound familiar, you need to identify in your mind where that came from because the author is doing that on purpose to take you back in your thinking to that time so that you can draw some comparisons or make some contrasts. And that's what's happening here is there's a new creation going on that just as in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that the whole world had been created and all the pieces put into place and all the realms filled with the different kind of creatures and all that kind of stuff, including, including the man and the woman. And then this language comes. Now, all of creation has been flooded, or at least all of the earth has been flooded. And all uh, living things, all breathing things, all things in whom there is the breath of life have been destroyed except for those who were on the ark itself now. You have similar language being given to Noah and his family as was originally given. This is a, this is a creation-wide instruction, just like the instructions with Adam and Eve had an impact on all of creation, so also this situation here with Noah and his family has uh, the extent uh, to all of creation, okay? All right, so that's the extent of it. Right? So we see this new creation language. It's very interesting. You should always pay attention to that stuff when you see it. But we continue. And we see what the instructions are going to be. We've talked to, just entered into this idea of not eating flesh with the life in it. And in verse 5 of chapter 9, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Now if you remember what was going on in Genesis chapter 6, it was mayhem. It was mayhem. We can't picture how bad it was. It was bad enough that God said, I'm going to destroy the whole place because of what's going on. And so here, he's laying down some instructions in this, in this covenant. He says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And so we'll read later on in the laws that uh, if there is an ox that is given to goring, if it's gored somebody before, and it gores someone else, put that thing to death, right? That's what it does. And the human's life that it's goring is more important, more valuable clearly than even the life of that ox. And so, um, so from every beast I will require it and from man. So now man can't kill man. That's not a new idea. But this is going to be a new idea. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. So what's going on here? Well, here we've got instruction being given that we ought to protect one another. And in a situation where we've not been able to protect uh, a human life and, and one person has killed another person, that person ought to be put to death. The murderer ought to be put to death. You see, there's instruction given here that God is giving to mankind that He ought to practice just retribution, that He ought to practice justice in this sense of punishing the guilty. There's a, there's a warrant given here, very basic, and in its kernel, there's a warrant given for government, human government. We are to establish the concept of justice, not chaos. There had been chaos in Genesis chapter 6. There should not be chaos now, right? So God is giving instructions that even right here, we are to establish the concept of protecting life particularly protecting human life, right? And so uh, that's one of the stipulations there is that we are to uh, protect life. But he continues in verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Not only are we to protect life, but this instruction is given to promote family, to promote the expansion, really the explosion of the human race. And so those are the instructions that are given. Those are the stipulations that are placed upon mankind. We're to, we're to protect life, and we are to promote life. So those are the instructions that are given, uh, the expectations that are placed upon man at this point. But then a transition happens in verse 8, and we see uh, the tone uh, changing a little bit. And here is where God enters in to this word called covenant into this picture. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So God is going to make a covenant with Noah. He's going to make a, a covenant with Noah's sons and with all of his offspring after him. What's you and me? All of those who descend from Noah are included in this covenant. All of mankind. But not only mankind. Look at verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you. God is making a covenant with the birds. God is making a covenant with the livestock. And every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark. For it is for every beast of the earth. Now, this is, this is an unusual covenant. Normally, a covenant is between uh, at least two parties, but they're human. Or perhaps it's, it's this government and that government, or this nation and that nation, but those are human entities. And here we have God establishing a covenant with Noah, for sure, and with his sons, even, and, and then with his offspring, humans, but then with all creation. Every creature is included in this covenant. That's massive. The scope of this is, is, is not just humanity. The scope of this goes to all living things. Verse 11, here's the promise of the covenant. Those are the parties of the covenant. Here is the promise of the covenant. I establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is promising. He's included all living things in this covenant, and the promise that He makes to them is, I will never again destroy all flesh, destroy all of the earth by flood. That's the promise that He's making. He's not going to uh, destroy uh, everything again with flood. That's the promise that He makes. And now it's interesting when we, when we look at this, what, is, what, is, uh, what are the stipulations given to man? To protect life, to promote life. But is the covenant contingent upon mankind keeping that? No. The covenant is where God says, I will do this. Period. The covenant is one-sided in that sense. It has stipulations. It has expectations from us. How are we to continue in this world? Well, we are to protect life and we are to promote life. We are to be fruitful and multiply and we're to uh, execute justice. But the, the covenant is not contingent upon that. The covenant is contingent upon God Himself. He says, I will do this thing. I will preserve the earth. I will preserve the earth. And He gives a sign of it. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God gives the sign of the covenant as a reminder, certainly to us. The, the, the point is that we look and see and remember God's faithfulness, God's covenant promise. But the way it's worded repeatedly in here is God says, so that I will see it and I will remember. And I think the point there is that we are going to put God to the test as people again and again and again in a way that, in a manner of speaking, He's going to need that reminder because He's really going to want to destroy us again. I think that's what's, what's being said here. Not that God needs a reminder, but that that sign God put there stands before Him as a reminder of how He is going to behave. It stands there as a reminder for us every time we see the rainbow to remind us of what God is going to do, what God is not going to do. So He has promised to preserve us. And what a blessing that He has. What, what, what would urge Him to do so? What would cause Him to make such a covenant? Well, it's certainly not the goodness of man. He just wiped out everybody. He, he found Noah to be upright, and so He saved him and his family. And the next thing we read about Noah, he's getting drunk. Right? So it's not the goodness of man that has brought about this kind of covenant. It is 
something within God Himself where He determines He's going to make this covenant. And so we see uh, the parties of the covenant, God and Noah and all creatures. We see the promises uh, that uh, He will no more destroy uh, the earth and all flesh by the flood. We see the stipulations that we've already seen. We are to execute justice. We are to be fruitful and multiply. And we see that there is a sign given of the rainbow itself. Okay? Now that's all review. There's nothing new in there probably for, uh, from anything you've heard on the Noahic covenant. But I have a question here. Our question comes back to this. How do we understand this explicit covenant in this framework? Where does it fit? What is God accomplishing by giving the Noahic covenant? Is the Noahic covenant an administration? Is He administering the covenant of grace? Is the giving of the, covenant, the, the Noahic covenant a way of God saying, here's the covenant of grace for you, covenanted to you, so that the saving grace of God comes to the recipients of that covenant? I don't think so. In what we read, where is the redemption? Where is there salvation from sin being given in here? Now, you can look across the page. It's across the page on mine, 6. Go to chapter 6 and verse 18 of Genesis. And this is before the flood. So you have God already beginning the covenant language before the flood actually comes and he says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, right? So there is a covenant, uh, an aspect of the covenant has to do with Noah and his family being saved. So isn't that kind of like the covenant of redemption or the covenant of grace? Isn't that kind of uh, that God is saving them and that has to do with the covenant of grace? But look at the next Verse, in verse 19, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, male and female, etc. This is about the salvation of life, yes. The continuation of life from pre-flood to after the flood, and that's the grace of God, isn't it? God had every right to just completely wipe the slate clean and start fresh or not start fresh, right? He had every right to do that. So it is His grace that He spares Noah. It's by His grace that He spares Noah's family, but He also spares the animals. And so He's, he's sparing life in general. We don't have anything here about spiritual salvation. Now later, uh, Old Testament writers and New Testament writers will look back on this and they will say, as Uh, people were rescued through the waters in the ark with Noah, so also we are rescued by God. But that's a a comparison. That's looking back at the example of Noah and his family being saved. It's not saying that uh, that they were uh, saved spiritually when they were saved physically. So I don't think it's redemptive. But where does it fit? Where does... I mean, if we're going to examine this explicit covenant and then look at these covenants that we've talked about that are theological, 
that are uh, not as explicit as the Noahic covenant, if we can't see how the Noahic covenant fits, maybe there's something wrong with our structure. Because after all, we just did a little Bible study of a few verses out of Genesis itself, right? And we want to interpret um, uh, any kind of ideas that we might have in light of what we find in Scripture. So how does or does the Noahic covenant fit with this structure here? And here's, here's how I think it fits. There is no spiritually saving grace offered in this covenant. It's not even discussed. But there is certainly common grace. Not saving grace, but common grace. So when I talk about those, those uh, uh, two different aspects, if I talk about saving grace... versus common grace. What am I talking about? Saving grace is the kind of grace that brings salvation, spiritual salvation for the sinner, where the sinner who is excluded from God's presence by his rebellion, who is spiritually dead, is made alive and brought into relationship with God. That's saving grace. That's God's saving grace that He shows. And that, that saving grace is not at work for all of mankind. But common grace, common grace is the idea that God does not deserve, uh, God, God is not required and we do not deserve sunshine. Whether, whether uh, Christian, non-Christian, uh, or whatever, we don't deserve kindness in our lives. We don't deserve flavorful food. We don't deserve to be able to put seed in the ground and after a while something sprouts up that we can eat. We don't deserve any of those things. That is God's grace, but it is not saving grace. It is common grace that's given to all of mankind. That's given to all of creation, really, because the animals graze from that same thing that you planted in the ground and sprang up. And so though there is not saving grace, I don't see saving grace at work in the Noahic covenant. I see common grace at work in the Noahic covenant. That the world which has just seen evil on a scale to threaten its very continuation back in chapter 6 of Genesis receives a covenant of common grace that will give stability to the created order so that redemptive history can move forward. And the covenant of grace, the gospel, can ultimately be established. And so this Noahic covenant is giving stability, providing uh, some protection and preservation to a world that's marred by sin. And we see it in sickness and death. We weren't made to die, and yet we die. That's a result of sin being in the created order because of the fall. And you have the fact that not only do we die of old age and cancer and such things, but we kill each other. And so the broken covenant of works has wreaked such havoc upon all of creation that God has stepped in and given this covenant to Noah, a covenant that's given to him and to his offspring and to all of creation, where God promises, okay, I'm not going to destroy it all again by flood. 
And here's what I want you to do. Establish justice. Protect and promote life. And by means of that, by means of this covenant being given, the thousands of years that exist between the time of Noah, which is shortly after Adam and Eve, the thousands of years that existed between the time of Noah and that flood and the time of Christ coming on the scene are made possible because God gives this Noahic covenant that stabilizes things, that preserves life, that, uh, that, that makes it so the world can continue, which was not a guarantee when you look back at Genesis 6. The Noahic covenant makes it so the world can continue so that the covenant of grace can come about, so that mankind will continue, so that Jesus Himself can come on the scene and live His life of obedience to God, keeping that covenant of works and then paying the penalty, uh, even though He hadn't broken the covenant of works, paying the penalty as if He had, so that you and I, by faith in Him, get to have life. Get to have His righteousness and forgiveness of our sins. That is, so that the covenant of grace would be promised, would be further uh, explained and described, and so that it would come on the scene in the person of Jesus Himself. And so the way one author puts it is, he says, the reason and purpose for this promise of preservation is that it creates a stable platform upon which God's plan for salvation can play out. So the Noahic covenant itself, I do not see as an administration of the covenant of grace. But I see it as laying the groundwork, establishing some stability, so that history can continue, so that redemptive history can continue, and Christ will come on the scene, He will do His work, He will complete His work, and salvation accomplished by Him can be offered to you and me by faith. And so that's how I see the Noahic covenant and how it relates to uh, covenant theology uh, itself. So it's not, it's not a, an administration of the covenant of grace, but it is applied to all of creation. And it uh, it creates a context in which the covenant of grace, the gospel, can come about and you and I can have salvation in Christ. So that's how I see the Noahic covenant relating to this. It, it provides that preservation that is all too important. And I don't think we really understand unless we go back and reflect on what we see back in Genesis chapter 6 and the chaos that was ruling that threatened the very existence of life on earth. And God, in the face of that, destroys that, but establishes in the Noahic covenant a new context in which will come the covenant of grace, in which will come the gospel to us when Jesus accomplishes His work. So, that is the Noahic covenant. Uh, and any questions on that? Or, and be thinking about other questions, we've got 10 minutes. That's way early for me. That's way early for me. Any questions on this Noahic covenant, how it relates to our understanding of covenant theology?
All right? Any other questions that maybe you've thought of earlier that we've not addressed um, that, you, that you have written down tonight? I've got just a couple here. Yes, Lou. And then I see a hand in the back. Was that you, Rick? All right, you're next. Yeah. Yes. So the question is about um, the Reformed who practiced, uh, practice infant baptism and the notion uh, found amongst many of them of the covenant family. Um, and not only uh, in, the, in these contexts, not only do they baptize their infants as a, uh, as, because they understand that um, circumcision in the old covenant which was given to infants is a parallel to baptism which in the new covenant they believe ought also to be given to infants because they see a great correlation between, uh, between those two because the old covenant and the new covenant they see as both administrations of this same covenant of grace. Some of those not only baptize their infants but allow their small children to partake of the Lord's Supper. So pedo-communion, they call it not only pedo-baptism, where the child is, the infant is baptized, but communion from the earliest ages to enter into that. Now, uh, I think that is the most consistent. Uh, I think that's the more consistent uh, view. I think the idea of there being a pedo baptism, an infant baptism, but then later on we want to wait till they've made a, 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 a profession of faith before we let them have the Lord's Supper. I think there's a, there's a recognition in there on their part that this baptism is not how we understand baptism at all. They, they, see, they see the uh, uh, communion as playing that role. But yes, there are some who are, I believe, more consistent in their, in their pedo-baptist views who uh, give their children uh, the Lord's Supper as well. Who, um, and this, this goes uh, uh, pretty deep and affects a lot of things. I think that's the great, uh, I think that's a very small minority who do that. But I think, I, in my opinion, they are being more consistent than, than those who baptize their infants but then wait till a, a, a profession of faith, a believable for profession of faith to give them communion. I think they are inherently recognizing uh, something that we recognize with baptism, but they're seeing it just with communion. So, um, yes, there are some, and I, I, don't, I don't know how to speak more intelligently on that topic. Rick, ask a question I can speak intelligently on, please. <laughs> Yes, I, yeah, I would certainly say so. What then, what force is there, what would cause a guy like, like Darby, who I guess the originator of this particular thing in the early 1800s, to deviate from covenant theology and make these dispensations? What, what, uh, I, know, I know people are sinful, but were there forces that 
Yeah, yeah. So the, yes, the, the, the question is about, just for the sake of the recording, the question is about um, the fact that for, for, for centuries, for, for centuries, the covenant theology was the, the, the understanding of theology, at least amongst uh, uh, Protestants, non, uh, non-Lutheran Protestants. And, um, but then a change happened when, when Darby came on the scene and uh, in the, the early to mid-19th uh, century. What, what was the cause of that? Why, why, did he, why did he move the direction he did? And then, and then why, have, why has Christianity so uh, uh, followed suit more broadly, particularly in evangelicalism? Why has Christianity followed suit such that nowadays um, it seems to me that uh, that actually dispensationalism is the, ma- the majority view and covenant theology is the minority view. I-, I don't know that that's the case, but I know it's definitely grown stronger since the mid-19th century. Well, when it, when it comes to the-, the question of Darby, I can't remember the history of what motivated him personally. I, I don't really remember what caused him. I've read about it, and, uh, but I can't really uh, remember. But as far as how it has grown in strength, and I think this is, this is important for us to think about, how it has grown in such strength in our country and in our circles is um, in the early 20th century, there was the rise of liberalism. There was the rise of the church. Uh, I put quotes around the church, the aspect, the branch of Christianity uh, that wanted to see the poor taken care of, wanted to see good works being done, wanted to see change come to culture. So that, so that Christians are out ministering and, and stop squabbling over the doctrine already. We need to be out there working. We need to be accomplishing the things. We need to be uh, making an impact in this world. And, and with that, they, there, there was a, a, a diminishment in the belief of core Christian doctrines, like the inerrancy of Scripture, like the deity of Christ, like the bodily resurrection of Christ, and on and on. So those things became less important because what was focused on was doing the good deeds. And just leave that doctrine alone. We don't really... And, that, and it's, really, it's really problematic. You know, you're believing all these things that are just unscientific, people. Get with the program, right? And so that's what liberal Christianity was doing. By the way, there's a really great book written 100 years ago um, this year by J. Gresham Machen called Christianity and Liberalism. I highly, highly recommend it. There's one copy in our library, but it's only one. So I, I recommend you buy it and get it and read it, it's, it's every bit as applicable today as it was then. So against that, with this liberalism and, and throwing out these, these you know, quirky doctrines like the resurrection of Christ, and th- that's kind of, the, kind of was the mood. Let's focus on, on doing these good things. In reaction against that, conservatives were saying, well, no, we hold to the inspiration of Scripture. We hold to the deity of Christ. We hold to the bodily resurrection of Christ. We hold to these fundamentals. And so there arose the, uh, the fundamentalist movement who's saying, I don't care if you think we sound funny. We believe these things. And there tended to be a great, uh, a great number of those who were standing for what was true, who were also those who read the Schofield Reference Bible, who who were dispensational in their doctrine. And you let that continue for a few decades, and suddenly, well, not suddenly, a few decades, you come to think that I am a conservative 
Christian. I stand for these doctrines that are good and godly against the liberalism. And I stand for a literal reading of Scripture which tells me that there's going to be a future, uh, 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 not just ethnic, but national Israel with the rebuilding of the temple. And there's going to be this literal, it all, it all becomes one package. And so that to be conservative in this new paradigm with, with, with decades having passed, to be conservative means you stand over here. And I read the Bible literally. That's why I believe in the, in the, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that's why I believe in this particular eschatology. That's why I believe in dispensationalism. And so there, 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 there develops this mindset that to be conservative is to be dispensational. And even though there are people in, in different camps, I won't put them over here, that's, it, there are people in different camps who believe in the inspiration authority of Scripture, they believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, they believe in the deity of Christ, but they read the Bible and say, well, no, there's a great continuity between Israel of the Old Covenant and the church of the New Covenant. There's a, there's a greater continuity there. They don't, they don't read the Bible in a dispensational hermeneutic. But they're conservative, right? They're conservative in every other way. It's just that they're covenant theologians, not dispensational in their thinking. And so in, in our context, we, we have to be very, very careful because in the mindset, in my mindset, the way I was trained, it's, I, I'm now one minute over, so you did it, Rick. Um, it's Rick's fault. In, in my mindset, the way I was trained in two of the three schools I went to, the covenant theologians don't really believe the Bible, don't you know? They spiritualize the Bible. They're not reading it literally like us. And we're the conservatives. We also happen to be the dispensationalists. And this is conservatism, right? That's the boogeyman. That's the image that's given to the covenant theologian. That's the perspective from, from this entrenched, uh, been in the, in the fight with liberalism for a hundred years. And so this is the mentality, is uh, this dispensational mentality. When they look out there, there's a lumping together, together from this perspective of the liberal who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, bodily resurrection, or the inspiration of Scripture, with the covenant theologian. Because the covenant theologian sometimes in the New Testament reads the word Israel and sees that actually it's talking about us. We're the true Israel. But they're conservative, right? And so from the dispensational perspective, it's very hard to discern between those two. And so we need to be patient. And we need to be patient with ourselves as we're working through these things. And that's one of the reasons we're uh, trying to discuss covenant theology in the way that we are so that we can, we can demonstrate that, that yes, we, there is a different hermeneutic that we read by that is not identical to the dispensational hermeneutic. But the conservatism is just as conservative. We're just seeking to read the Bible in, in, in a way that is consistent with how I believe and, and I'm seeking to teach that the, the apostles read the Bible. But we need, to be, we need to be gentle and cautious because we are dealing with a number of ideas lumped together. Because for so many dispensationalists, to be conservative means to be dispensational. 
And we need to help, uh, help our brothers and sisters realize that there is a conservatism that believes the Bible as the Bible's written and meant to be read, believing in its inerrancy, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ, all of these conservative principles and values, the fundamentals holding to them, but seeing that, no, there's a different way to read Scripture that doesn't, doesn't do away with those things, it actually strengthens those things. But since there's, since there's this, these, this equation of different ideas and the attachment of the different ideas in their mind, we've got to be cautious and we have to be slow. And I have to remind myself, I'm, I'm the preacher, I'm the one doing the teaching, I have to remind myself to be, to be distinguishing so that I don't make a statement that contributes to the misunderstanding from this perspective, from the dispensational perspective. I need to be cautious and I need to be discerning in the things that I say, the way I talk, the things I clarify, the things I uh, stand for and against. And so it's a, there's a whole lot of psychology, in, there's a whole lot of mental and emotional um, history and even baggage that goes into this that we have to be so careful of. We have to be so careful of. We can, we, can, we can cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to throw the baby out with the bathwater when in reality, from my perspective, I just want them to see the, the, the glorious truths uh, that, that, that come when you, when you read the Old Testament the way the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. It's so glorious and so helpful and I don't want it to be misunderstood. So that's an excellent question to end on. Thank you, Rick. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are short-sighted all too often. We, are, uh, we lack caution. At, some, at, at times we lack caution, and at other times we're cowards. We lack boldness. And often we lack understanding and we lack clarity. Father, I pray that you would help us to be cautious and gentle but to be bold and have courage, to be clear thinkers and clear communicators, and to, to love very clearly our brothers and sisters in Christ who might see some of these things differently than we do. Help us to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we, we pray for your blessing and we pray for your help. Thank you for uh, what you have been showing us from your word even these past weeks. Thank you that you have entrusted us with your word, that you have given us your spirit who dwells within us. Thank you that you have given us the body of Christ around us. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who has completed that covenant of works in our place and given us the benefits of it. We are so grateful for Jesus, our Savior, and we pray in His name. Amen.